How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. I'm your host today, and we got Ian back as well. Ian, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I'm really excited about today's topic. Yep, it should be Especially pretty... regarding Yep, it should be pretty interesting because, like you said, we're talking about the pioneers of scuba diving and uh, specifically Jack Cousteau, Emily Gagnon, and uh, Jim E. Lockwood. And Lockwood himself is actually really very little unknown. So it should be interesting talking about him as well. But before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that you can check our Facebook and our Twitter pages for information on the episodes as well as to ask questions and to stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. We also have a community page for information and to interact with the podcast. Uh, we are also in the development of a Patreon-only Discord server for more direct interaction with the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on Anchor and our awesome Patreon page, which gives you exclusive access to bonus content and more for as little as $3 a month. You can also support us by joining the community page and sharing any historical information you come across. In the end, we're going to give a uh, we're going to give a shout out to some of the you guys who have already liked the social media platforms, and uh, we thank you for the growth that it's already been experiencing. So, don't forget to like, follow, comment, and even write a review on any or all of our platforms, as we really appreciate listener interaction. Like I said, today we're going to be talking about the pioneers of scuba diving, namely Jack Cousteau, Emily Gagdon, and uh, Jim E. Lockwood. And uh, as usual, I'd like to start this episode, as we've been doing with these explorers and adventurers, with a quote. This quote's by Jack Cousteau, and this is what he said. The sea once cast its spell, and it set its holds on its net of wonder forever. All right, let's get right into it. All right, let's get into the first of the three major pioneers of scuba diving. Now, Jacques Cousteau uh, was a pioneer in uh, many aspects of scuba diving, uh, from technology to exploration to discovering, and uh, even in, uh, he was even a part of the Navy as well. So there's a whole lot of uh, diversity behind his character. Yeah, and really, when we're talking about the major pioneers of scuba diving, a lot of people actually think about Cousteau. That's the first. Pe- that's the first person that comes to uh, a lot of people's heads. I know uh, it, that's the same for me too, because I actually thought Cousteau was one of the first people to uh, to uh, pioneer scuba diving. But as you're going to learn, and as we learned throughout this episode, uh, there is actually several more people who had a very strong influence on it as well. But uh, getting started with Cousteau. Cousteau was born on June 11th in 1910 in Gironde, France, to one Daniel and Elizabeth Cousteau. He completed his preparatory studies at the... Ian, you want to say that pronunciation for me? Collège Stanislas. All right, in Paris. And uh, in 1930, he entered the French Navy as a gunnery officer, and uh, he was actually going to pursue his career in uh, naval aviation when it was cut short in an automobile accident where he broke both of his arms. The accident, however, allowed him to indulge his passion for the ocean. So I find it interesting that one of the main... One of one of the main guys you think about considering scuba diving, Cousteau, actually wasn't going to have anything to do with it at all. He originally wanted to pursue uh, naval aviation. 
So uh, I, I guess in a sense, he was still uh, he still was pursuing a passion for the ocean. But uh, that that wasn't his original intention. Uh, he he wasn't originally going to be a scuba diver. He was gonna he was going to be a pilot and uh, join the naval aviation. That's very interesting. Those are like kind of kind of polar opposites. One's like in the air, and one's in the ocean, right? Deep sea exploration, and one's like uh, fighting from a plane. So, yeah, that's quite a difference. But it, it, it took sadly, it took a tragic event like breaking both of his arms. Geez, I can't even imagine to uh, to get him interested in this passion for the ocean and uh, get him into scuba diving. So that's as crazy. a yeah, it is crazy. As a French naval officer and pioneer of scuba diving, he studied the sea and all of its life forms. He was actually the author of several books, perhaps one of the most famous being his The Silent World, which was a story of undersea discovery and adventure. And that was published in 1953. He also directed several films, most notably the documentary adaption of his book, The Silent World. So uh, besides uh, doing scuba diving, he was actually a pioneer for a lot of uh, underwater filmmaking, which uh, later in the 1980s, when we talked about Mel Fisher, would uh, continue that work with uh, the shipwrecks that he would go after in Florida. And so Cousteau kind of set the base for a lot of this underwater filming industry that would uh, later arise because uh, obviously technology has changed and developed over time. And uh, what Cousteau started back in the 1950s has really developed into something quite amazing today. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine like what their uh, what their photography would look like, considering it. I'm sure it was very uh, nothing like today. Today's uh, photography is insane for underwater. Oh yeah, I know because uh, I have, I've obviously done a lot of scuba diving myself. If you guys have listened to some of our behind the scenes episodes and uh, have been subscribing to our Patreon and uh, some of the stuff that we use today for uh, for filming underwater has definitely come a long way from uh, the stuff that Cousteau would have used back in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. Like, I see pictures of things underwater, and it's better than uh, it's better than any camera that I, I've seen for anything above land. Oh, yeah, some of them definitely are. So after the armistice of 1940, obviously after... Uh, uh, he was... Right around the time of World War II, obviously, so we're thinking the 1940s, the armistice during 1940s with World War II, Jack Cousteau and his family took refuge in Megev, I believe, where uh, he went on to co-create a documentary film in 1943 for the first French underwater film titled 18 Meters Deep. In 1943, he made yet another successful film called Simply Shipwrecks, which utilized two of the very first aqualung prototypes made by the Air Liquid Company following instructions from Cousteau and Emily Gagdon. And uh, we'll get into Emily Gagdon specifically a little bit later. So again, uh, here we see uh, two of his uh, underwater documentary and uh, some, of his, some of the stuff he made for uh, underwater filmmaking. These documentary films, which he did in the 1940s, uh, obviously concerning uh, shipwrecks and um, his passion for uh, scuba diving. Uh, I've heard of 18 meters deep before, and uh, wasn't that uh, wasn't there a story of someone getting trapped uh, somewhere around 18 meters deep? You know, I'm trying to remember. You might be right. I'm. Hmm. 
I know uh, that's starting to get down to uh, 18 meters is uh, is really deep for uh, for scuba diving. So I know that at least the pressure alone, uh, not even taking into a, the fact of getting trapped down there, but the pressure alone is dangerous enough, let alone getting trapped if you're right. And yeah, I mean, you know all about that because you have to equalize every time you go deeper. Otherwise, you can get uh, pressure sickness. But yeah, the first, obviously, yeah, decompression sickness, right. Um, Obviously, the first adaption of the film was in French because uh, Cousteau himself was from France. So uh, a lot of the early ones that you're going to find are in French, but uh, there's also a lot of remix of those. And uh, I I do recommend those because uh, I've, I've seen 18 meters deep, actually, and it's pretty good. So shortly after Cousteau did a brief stint with the French Navy, where he assembled a commando operation against the Italian espionage services in France, he went on to receive several military decorations for his deeds. So uh, not only was he doing a lot of scuba diving and underwater documentary filmmaking, but with the French Navy, uh, he also did tons of different operations, uh, including the one we just talked about, the commando operation with the Italian espionage services in France. So, uh, like a lot of these explorers that we've talked about, he had a wide range of skills, and uh, he did a wide range of different activities. So, later, he continued working on the Aqualung design, giving birth to the scuba technology that is used today. According to his first book, Cousteau was not satisfied with the length of time he could spend underwater with the previous La Pure apparatus, so he improved it by adding a demand regulator and invented the Aqualung in 1942 with his partner, Emily Gagnon, finally making extended underwater exploration possible. And uh, we'll get into Emily Gagnon in a minute. So pretty much the Aqualung was the first... uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right word. The Aqualung was the first scuba set, essentially. It was the very first like thing a... that had anything to do with uh, scuba diving, besides, uh, obviously, some of the ancient civilizations. Rome developed uh, various techniques that were nowhere near what Cousteau was doing, but uh, were uh, also influential. No, I know this probably isn't 100% historically accurate. But um, Assassin's Creed uh, Black Flag had these kind of apparatus where they would throw a huge metal uh, cylinder into the water and then it would hold a certain amount of air. That's interesting. For you to be able to, uh, to use. But I, I don't know how uh, historically accurate that is, but it, it yeah, seemed like it could work. Although they, it's, it also seemed to ignore all the uh, compression and the compression sickness. So. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's a topic for another time, but uh, I think uh, some of those video games do have uh, do have some facts to them. But uh, let's get back into uh, some stuff with Emily Gagnon. Now I'll uh, hop into Emily Gagnon and... Uh, Emily Gagnon was actually a right-hand man to Jacques Cousteau and uh, was the main engineer behind the uh, Aqualung uh, prototype. So it was really interesting to see how they uh, 
they developed it together and uh, really uh, revolutionized the scuba industry. Oh yeah, because again, like we said, the the aqua lung was pretty much the first complete system for uh, for diving. It was a uh, the, the very first edition of the what would have been the modern day uh, the diving regulator. So Emily Gagnon was born in the French province of Burgundy in November of 1900. He went, he went on to graduate from technical school in the early 1920s, and he was later employed by the large gas supply firm Air Liquid as an engineer specializing in high-pressure design. So uh, I, I don't want to generalize, but I think Emily Gagnon was very much the brain of the operation. And uh, I think he had a larger hand, actually, than Cousteau in helping to develop this Aqualung system because of his uh, his technical training and uh, specializing in high-pressure design. The the, the reward for like that. yeah the the reward for the for the aqualung system should really go to uh, Emily Gagnon I think at least yeah I agree I mean he seemed to be an expert in with uh, the pressurized uh, oxygen air composition or whatever that's supposed to be made to to support the aqualung system. Yeah, and before even going on to work with uh, Cousteau, he already had a background with the large gas supply firm Air Liquid. And uh, I believe that Air Liquid would actually also help Cousteau and Emily Gagnon in a, in a large way. So uh, being obviously an engineer specializing in high-pressure design, Emily Gagnon was really the, the brains of the operation again. So Emily Gagnon was a French engineer who working with Jacques Cousteau in 1943 helped co-invent the Aqualung system or the diving regulator used for the first scuba equipment. The invention easily allowed people to explore the ocean more easily by adding, or sorry, more easily by using a demand valve design that was excellent for regulating air supply under varied pressure conditions. So that alone, that it was able to regulate under varied pressure conditions shows a uh, Shows the origin of uh, what is today our modern scuba diving equipment because our modern scuba diving equipment very much perfected that design and uh, is able to withstand pressure as a diver goes deeper and deeper under the water. Oh, I actually heard a story of uh, a similar, a similarly designed system by someone even earlier than uh, Emily Gagnon. Oh, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, who the guy's name was, but he accidentally uh, made the composition of air entirely oxygen. So when he went uh, to use the, the the device, he actually died because uh, of oxygen poisoning. Because air isn't like 100% oxygen. There's nitrogen and right. uh, other, other uh, elements. So he actually ended up dying. But he had, uh, other than that, it would have actually worked uh, had he not had the actual air comp uh, composition so it was really interesting like uh that there might have been scuba diving even earlier but unfortunately it didn't go to plan well yeah and uh, even once we start talking about uh about lockwood which uh, we're going to do in a, a separate episode uh you'll see that uh scuba diving itself actually uh may have started a lot earlier than the operations with Cousteau and emily gagnon and that uh, they may have had a 
I, I don't want to say rival, but uh, somebody who was doing the same thing at the same time or maybe even earlier. And uh, touching on what you said, uh, yeah, so pretty much the composition of a scuba cylinder, uh, you got to take into account that the atmosphere that we live in is 70% nitrogen and uh, the rest is oxygen. And so uh, a 100% scuba cylinder with oxygen uh, creates oxygen toxicity, which is the professional name for uh, that disease where uh, the too much oxygen can actually have a harmful effect on your on your body and uh, the systems within your human body. So yeah. uh, that's why it, actually it takes special. Yeah, it is. It's poisoning you. It, that's why actually it takes special training to uh, to even dive with higher percent higher percentages of oxygen, and that's usually what uh, divers will call the. That's what divers call. God, why is this slipping my mind? It's a it's a special scuba cylinder. Nitrox. God, I don't know why yeah, I took that forever. Is. Thank you. I knew it started with an N. I was slipping my mind. Nitrox has a higher percentage of oxygen in it, so that's why it actually takes special training. Besides, uh, if you're able to do a, an SDI open water or PADI open water course, they just teach you with uh, the, the regular cylinder, which is usually 70% nitrogen, and then the rest is oxygen, where uh, nitrox has a higher percentage of oxygen. And uh, there's actually factors that go into play that uh, – with these higher levels of oxygen that people have actually been, uh, been healed, which is crazy to think about because, uh, I work at a scuba shop and, uh, we had a, we had a young scuba diver with autism and we gave him a nitrox cylinder with higher percentages of oxygen. And it actually helped cure his autism. That's insane to me. I, I, I don't know why I've never heard of that before, but I, I just, I didn't know that was the thing. Cause that sounds insane. And if I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, does nitrox like calm you down uh, a sort of way? Yeah. Well, I, I'm what my boss actually has me do is uh, after a long day at work, we'll uh, we'll go in the pool and then uh, we'll use a we'll use a nitrox cylinder. We'll go down to the bottom of the pool and uh, just having the higher levels of oxygen. Just sitting on the pool, your eyes closed, you take your mask off. It's uh a very, very good way to uh, calm down after a hard day of work because uh, the higher oxygen levels actually uh, increase uh, your brain functionability and uh, actually help you calm down and de-stress a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> so uh, kind of tying it all back in, because we went on a little tangent there, the idea that uh, they were able to develop a demand valve design that uses a uh, that regulates air supply under very pressure conditions, uh, not only led to uh, what is today's modern scuba cylinder, but because of that, it also helped lead to uh, d other developments that would come later, such as nitrox. And uh, there's even uh, other scuba cylinders that I have yet to learn about because I'm still working my way up to dive through the diving ladder but uh pretty much what they did here was uh the foundation for everything that would come today yeah 
So the first production of the Aqualung system was released in France by 1946, where the invention ended up proving a wonder. And by a year later, in 1947, he and his family would move to Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where he would create a lab and proceeded to engineer and patent a large number of scuba and undersea technology first, including the direct ancestor of virtually every type of scuba regulator in common use today. So there you go. Kind of wraps it up pretty nice. So uh, I I think actually they ended up moving to Canada because uh, they were actually having a there there was some kind of hostile situation that they were dealing with in France that forced them actually to move to Canada I believe. Oh really? And this is uh, you take in mind that this is right after World War Two as well. So yeah, that makes sense. And uh, if you guys have ever wondered, uh, SCUBA actually stands for Self-Contained Underwater Breathing Apparatus. And so uh, that whole system as a whole is self-contained. Uh, it has its own regulated air pressure, very similar to what Emily Gagnon and Jack Cousteau would develop. And uh, what they developed, again, was pretty much a direct ancestor of uh, all the SCUBA regulators and systems that we use today. Yeah. So uh, that's really uh, Emily Gagnon. He was uh, very much the partner and the brains of the operation when uh, working with Cousteau. And uh, him and Cousteau would actually go on to uh, develop the Aqualung system, which was the precursor to uh, pretty much every scuba system regulator today. Yeah. And uh, people always say, like, uh, not, not always, but I hear often that people would like to breathe underwater, but... That's essentially what scuba diving is, like a self-contained underwater underwater breathing apparatus, which yeah. is insane to me. So essentially, when people look past it, but essentially that's what exactly what scuba diving allows you to do. It allows you to breathe underwater. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very interesting for sure. All right. So uh, that's... Again, pretty much Emily Gagnon, and uh, now we'll get back into uh, some of the stuff with Cousteau. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we will be right back after a short message from our sponsor. All right, getting back into Jacques Cousteau, uh, we had that intervention with Emily Gagnon because it fit well uh, with the with the creation of the Aqualung system. So it's nice to uh, dedicate that to um, Emily Gagnon, considering he was the main brains behind the operation. But now we're going to head back into Jacques Cousteau and what he ended up doing uh, afterwards. Yeah, because before, during, and after the development of the Aqualung system with uh, Emily Gagnon, Cousteau did a lot, and that's for sure. So uh, we're going to get into some more stuff that he ended up doing and... uh, underwater filmmaking uh some of the organizations that he developed and uh just his legacy today so getting back into it in 1946 Cousteau helped set up the modern day group c-e-8-p-h-i-s-m-e-r it's an acronym so uh, which is an underwater research group which tragically in 1947 suffered the first death of a diver 
using the Aqualung system while attempting a new depth record in while attempting a new depth record. Then uh, in 1948, Cousteau undertook a campaign in the Mediterranean to explore the Roman wreck Medea, and uh, it was the first underwater archaeology operation, opening the way for scientific underwater archaeology. Do you uh, do you know the cause of death uh, for the depth record? Was it a malfunction or was it a decompression sickness? You know, I I wonder because. Uh, he was attempting the new depth record and pretty much uh, right around this time, the aqualung system had just been developed. So uh, I, I wonder if it had something to do with just the pressure and uh, being the first one to have reached such depth is, uh, is dangerous in itself. So there's many factors I'm sure that went into play. Yeah. I mean, that's just a really unfortunate way to go. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's that's the way I want to go. Something like that. At least I'll uh, be a, a pioneer for uh, technology like that. <laughs> so, uh, besides the the tragedy that they faced, uh, Cousteau did go on uh, pretty much a year later to uh, help the pioneering of underwater archaeology. And because of it, in 1948, he actually went on to uh, help explore a Roman wreck, the Medea. And uh, that was the first archaeology operation uh, underwater, opening the way for uh, scientific underwater archaeology, which is uh, specifically important for me because uh, underwater archaeology is a career that I want to go into. Yeah, I find that really interesting. So that was the the first ever recorded underwater archaeology operation? Yeah, because obviously before that, there's not much they could have done without a, without a diving system in place yeah so that's really interesting to look at yeah so uh following that Cousteau then took part in a rescue of professor jack hughes picard's submersible fnrs2 during an expedition in 1949 and thanks to this rescue the french navy was able to reconstruct it into the fnrs3 and uh, the adventure is actually told in his book, The Silent World. So uh, continuing some of his uh, archaeological explorations. And uh, because of his archaeological explorations, uh, a year later, Professor uh, Jack Hughes Picard, who, uh, a scholar himself, uh, probably heard about Cousteau, uh, realized his potential. Uh, Cousteau was able to later help him actually save the submersible that was lost during an expedition. And uh, this is another stint he pretty much did with the French Navy. So in 1949, Cousteau left the French Navy and then a year later founded the French Oceanographic Campaigns, leasing the ship Calypso as a mobile laboratory for field research, diving, filming, and underwater archaeological excavations. With the publication of The Silent World, he predicted the existence of the echolocation abilities of purpose of porpoises. God, I probably porpoises. Uh, gosh. <laughs> purpose. Porpoise. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Uh, after noticing a group following them. So uh, he ends up leaving. You can go. So, so wait, he, he actually uh, was the one who discovered echolocation? 
Yeah, because uh, he saw a group of the porpoises. I don't know why he can't say that word. That makes me mad. Uh, following their boat. <laughs> wow, I, I never knew that. He did a he did an experiment with, experiment with them because uh, they were following his boat, and uh, he he turned a different direction and uh, he did a bunch of maneuvers to try to throw them off. But because of their echolocation abilities, the they they didn't end up getting lost and uh, they kept right on the boat. Wow. And then uh, the Calypso is uh, is very important because that's going to be his uh, his submersible from uh, 1949 pretty much on till, uh, till he dies almost. And uh, the Calypso will play a very important part as the mobile laboratory for Cousteau. So he can do all of this field research, diving and filming that uh, he becomes known for. Yeah, so the Calypso was was uh, like you're saying, uh, it was his uh, own creation. Yeah, he he developed it. He created it. It was uh, it was mo- his mobile mobile laboratory. It was like a smaller version of the of of a submarine, pretty much. Which is that what a submersible is? It's essentially a a smaller manned uh, manned submarine, essentially. So, uh, continuing with some of the filmmaking stuff that he did, Cousteau went on to win the Palmer, the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 1956 for *The Silent World*, which he co-produced with Mally, and a year later took over as the leader of the Oceanographic Museum of Monaco. Afterward, he made his diving saucer, the SP350, underwater vehicle that can reach a depth up to 500 meters. And uh, if you guys don't know what 500 meters is, that's that's really deep. Essentially, like 1,500 feet. Yeah, 500 meters is uh, a six, 1,640 feet. Wow! So that's that's sure that's definitely really deep. So like a third of a mile. Oh yeah, that's absolutely insane. I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think uh, some submarines we have now can go about maybe like even a mile or two deep. Oh, yeah. The, <clears throat> the technology today was heavily based off the stuff that Cousteau and Emily Gagnon developed. And uh, it's definitely exponentially increased in, uh, in effectability and uh, pretty much... Uh, being able to go deeper, farther, stay underwater longer. And uh, it's all because of these two guys. And uh, just, just kind of off topic here, but essentially, uh, since we're talking about uh, how deep the uh, submarine could go, obviously this is a huge, uh, this is a huge revolution for the scuba uh, industry, but the Mariana Trench could actually, actually, the deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, you probably heard of it, actually uh, goes to about thirty-six thousand two hundred feet deep. So, wow! Essentially, this is just scratching the surface. Like we still have a lot to, yeah, uh, do here, and we don't have. I'm, I'm almost positive we do not have technology that can reach the bottom of the Mariana Trench. 
Oh yeah. Well, definitely not right now. It's crazy to think that uh, we have technology that can uh, that can take us all the way to the moon. We have uh, aircraft that can take us across the world in matters of hours. But uh, concerning our own ocean, we haven't haven't even hardly scratched the surface. And uh, that we've had so many so many pioneering moments with uh, with uh, space exploration itself. But uh, our own ocean, we haven't even finished exploring our own world. We have barely even scratched the surface of our uh, of the oceans on Earth itself. Yeah, uh, and uh, we're discovering new species like every other day. Like if you just go onto the internet, like every day or so, you're gonna and just search up what we've discovered in the ocean. There's websites that'll tell you like how many new species we've discovered, and it's crazy that we're like still discovering so many new animals and so many new uh formations underwater oh yeah so getting back into it in 1957 he was elected as the director of the oceanographical museum of monaco as well as being admitted to the united states national academy of sciences so uh because of his uh experiences and because of the pioneering that he did in the field of scuba diving he would it would go on to uh lead to many leadership roles in a uh, different organization such as the oceanographic museum of Monaco, and uh, even with the united states national academy of the sciences which is a uh, a very influential uh what exactly uh did the united states national academy of sciences uh uh, what do they? How do they operate? What do they do? Yeah, so it's pretty much a, a nonprofit organization dedicated to uh, the, the sciences, obviously, as the as the name says, and uh, they've they've done a lot of work with uh, pioneering different fields within uh, the different fields of sciences, and uh, it's uh, they've they've done a lot of work, pretty much. Uh, even today, they have up uh, they have up to two thousand members. Oh wow! So uh, they're they're a government, they're associated with the government, but uh, they're a nonprofit organization. In uh, October of 1960, a large amount of radioactive waste was going to be discarded in the Mediterranean Sea. So when Jacques Cousteau organized a publicity campaign, which in less than two weeks gained wide popular support, the train carrying the waste was stopped by women and children sitting on the railroad tracks, and it was sent back to its origin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's good. It's like a Gandhi That's moment. Good to, uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. It's like a, yeah, it's very much like a Gandhi moment of uh, civil disobedience. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we couldn't have done, we should have done this a bit more often because we still ended up polluting the ocean right. quite a bit. Yeah, there's a ton of pollution with the ocean and uh, the polar ice caps, obviously global warming. Uh, it's all happening because people aren't taking care of our oceans and our, uh, in our ecosystems. And it's uh Ultimately, I think what's going to end up crippling us in the future. Yeah, but there are organizations that are just shooting out of the ground right now that are helping to uh, 
counteract this. And oh, we yeah. just need to show them our support. Yeah, organizations today, and uh, even back then, uh, Cousteau was doing stuff himself in, uh, in the 1960s, which is which is good to see. Obviously, uh, it's still happening, which is, uh, which is a, a bad thing. But uh, people like Cousteau and the different organizations that have been founded today have been uh, have been very important in uh, trying to save our oceans and our ecosystems. Uh-huh. So again, in the 1960s, Cousteau was involved with a set of three projects, which were called the Precontinent One, Two, and Three, which were to build underwater villages, each aimed at increasing the depth of at which people could continuously live underwater and creating an environment where men could work on the seafloor. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, it's uh, that I read that after when I was doing the research, and it seemed very, uh, very science fiction, almost. I've actually, I actually read a book. Um, obviously, it was a fiction. It was a fiction novel, but it was about uh, these societies underwater after global warming, where people had to adapt to live underwater, and people were adapting, uh, adapting fish-like qualities where they could uh, learn. Uh, echolocation and like uh, electrification to like hunt but it was it was really cool to me to like see that but obviously uh, there's a lot of uh, things that wouldn't work as because the, the human body isn't meant to be submerged in water for extended years, periods months yeah. and even days yeah like we'll, we'll end up our bones and uh, muscles will end up deteriorating and just it's not good to be submersed for really for extended long, yeah. periods of time the worst trench foot you've ever experienced <laughs> yeah i'm sure Cousteau ended up learning that with this project yeah. but yeah it's a very interesting interesting thought though maybe in a few years we might have the technology but the idea that they were trying to pioneer this in the 1960s is insane because uh and uh, alone in the 1940s and 50s, they had just finished developing the aqualung system, which was the first, obviously, complete system for scuba diving. So they went all the way from that all the way to the concept of trying to build underwater villages. So they went so far with their research and uh, the pioneering that they did from the 1940s through the 1960s and even on. So uh, the idea that they were trying to figure out how to make underwater villages all the way back in the 1960s and uh, the fact that Obviously, we still can't do it today, and uh, it seems very science fiction, but the idea itself that they were trying to come up with this shows that they uh, were very influential in uh, the development of uh, underwater technology and scuba diving. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, it's, it's insane to me to, th- oh, yeah. to think that they are trying to, uh, to create these villages underwater because... They, we still we, obviously they they were they didn't they don't didn't know the long term effects of being exposed to that much pressure for extended periods of time, but it's just crazy to think that we might actually be able to do that someday. Yep, maybe one day that would definitely be cool. And that uh, they were trying to make it easier for men to work on the seafloor. Could you imagine having to work on the seafloor? That'd be like working in the in the coal mines, almost deep, dark, cold. That's what I thought of. I think I think the next big development in that 
in that aspect would be underwater bases where they would have their own pressurized uh, bases set on the ocean floor, which would just be crazy. Right. Well, if we can develop uh, develop scuba cylinders that are set to their own pressure, and uh, if we can develop scuba cylinders that are regulated by their own pressure systems, how far would it be of a step to go from that to actual villages and towns? Yeah. So continuing with uh, some of the stuff Cousteau ended up doing, he was actually he actually attended a meeting with American television companies, including ABC and NBC, and uh, they actually ended up creating the series The Undersea World of Jack Cousteau, which ran for 10 years and spawned a second documentary series, The Cousteau Odyssey. Around the same time, he wrote the book The Shark, Splendid Savage of the Sea, which described the ocean, which described the oceanic white-tipped shark as the most dangerous of all sharks. Well, personally, I believe that the, the tiger sharks are probably the most aggressive. Yeah. Personal experience. No, not personal experience. Like from, <laughs> I was going to say I've, what I've, what I've, what I've heard and what I've seen is that they, they are the ones who often end up being the most aggressive towards humans. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, although overall, although overall, sharks aren't necessarily aggressive towards humans. Yeah, right. What they teach you, like one of the first things they teach you about scuba diving, is uh, as long as you don't harm any animals, they won't harm you. Yeah, but but <laughs> they also teach you all about how many animals can potentially harm you. Well, yeah, which is a lot. <laughs> There's a lot that can harm you, but they won't unless they're attacked. Yeah, unless you provoke them, they're yeah. normally docile. That's like ninety nine percent of the time. That that's ninety nine percent of the reason why accidents with sea life happened is because they were provoked. And uh, an interesting fact that I uh, came across is like the most deadly creature in the ocean is the box jellyfish, and they don't have intent to hurt you. They just if you get in their path. You might you might get hurt or die. Jeez. So, so you don't have to provoke the jellyfish if you just swim under its tentacles. That might just be the end of you. Yeah. I also uh, I also found it interesting that uh, obviously Cousteau did a lot of scuba diving work and uh, a lot of even a uh, scientific underwater techno technological work, but uh, at the same time he was also sharing his passions with the world through these television series and the, the different books that he wrote, uh, sharing the information that he had learned from the ocean and uh, just ex expressing his interest and his love with the sea for, uh, for all of the world with uh, his contract with ABC and NBC and uh, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. The undersea world of Jacques Cousteau is actually how I first learned about Jacques Cousteau. So interesting way to be introduced to Jack Cousteau. Yeah. It makes sense, though, because that's what he was famous for, was these uh, his documentaries. Exactly. All those expeditions that he did to the undersea world. 
All right. So in 1973, along with his two sons, Frederick Hyman, he created the Cousteau Society for the Protection of Ocean Life, which a year before, while filming on Deception Island, Antarctica, saw Michael Lavell, Calypso's second-in-command, struck and killed by a rotor of the helicopter that was ferrying between Calypso and the island. That is brutal. Oh, my. Could you imagine being struck by a helicopter rotor? That'd just be being diced. That's like essentially (gasps) what a blender would be like. That's like a medieval execution, just straight piece of steel to the neck. Uh, That's crazy. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know people actually died from that. Right. Obviously you can die from anything, but I thought there'd be like enough safety precautions to like help you avoid that. Yeah. And I wonder if they even ended up getting it on, uh, on the documentary or whatever they were filming because it said that they were filming on deception Island in Antarctica. So, what if they were filming at the same time this happened and they were able to get that on camera? That would just be brutal. That's awful. <laughs> oh, my. It's like watching a peaceful documentary and then just see somebody get struck by a helicopter rotor. Yeah, that would be definitely a dark turn. Yeah. Cousteau had a, had a lot of moments like this in his life, and I'm sure it definitely taught him the the dangers of the world that he was exploring. And so I'm also sure it probably created a, a deeper respect for his love with the ocean. Yeah, I could imagine. So in 1975, John Denver actually released the hit song Calypso, which became a hit of its own reaching number two on the charts based off of Cousteau's uh, submersible, the Calypso. And right before we did this episode, I was actually talking with Ian because I wondered if the yellow submarine was uh, in any way related to uh, related to Calypso as well because it was a yellow submersible. And uh, I could be completely wrong and uh, going following a loose end, but uh, that'd be interesting. And uh, this is proof that he did have at least one song based off of uh, his underwater work. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't be too surprising. I mean, they're roughly around the same. Uh, Roughly in the same era. Right. So, wouldn't be too surprising. Just imagine having a song named after uh, named after you. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Even if it's named after your submersible, technically. So, in 1976, Cousteau located the wreck of the HMS Britannic. He also found the wreck of the... French 17th century ship of the line, La Terrasse, in uh, coastal waters off Crete. So uh, he went on to find some more shipwrecks, too. And uh, the Britannic actually was dope. John Shatterton, uh, a guy I know well, actually dove the Britannic as well. Wow. And uh, I'm trying to get... uh, John Chatterton on the podcast as well. And uh, we'll talk about some of his experiences with uh, diving the Britannic. And uh, now we know the guy that actually found it. So that's cool. It's nice to see those connections. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think just even the idea of finding a shipwreck is just amazing in itself, let alone finding several shipwrecks within your lifetime. 
I, I, it makes me look forward to uh, diving salvage wrecks even more. Because uh, I'm actually going up to uh, Musing, Michigan this summer, and I'm actually going to go dive for shipwrecks. So uh, now I have a appreciation for uh, some of these shipwrecks because of Cousteau and uh, even John Chatterton, who we hopefully will be able to talk to later down the road. So in 1977, together with Peter Scott, he received the UN International Environment Prize. And then uh, on June 28th, while the Calypso was on an expedition to Portugal, his second son, Philip, his uh, his preferred and designated successor, and with whom he had co-produced all his films since 1969, died in a PBY Catalina flying boat crash in the Tagus River near Lisbon. Cousteau was deeply affected. He called then he called his then eldest eldest son, the architect Jean Mitchell, to his side, and uh, this collaboration lasted fourteen years. What is with these people dying in such crazy ways? Yeah, dying in a boat crash off Portugal. Yeah. A flying boat crash, nonetheless. Right? Were they actually flying, or were they uh, boating at the time with the crash? Boating. Jeez, <laughs> that's quite the way to go out for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to be exposed to not just one tragic accident, but two in your lifetime. Well, yeah, and could you imagine watching your son die too in a boating accident like that? Yeah, that's so incredibly tragic. Yeah, that's that's stark. So, uh, with all the tragedies and uh, successes, they really uh. I think they evened out because uh, he had many moments of uh, rejoice in uh, in his life, but also many moments of uh, of sadness. Yeah. So Cousteau died actually of a heart attack later in June twenty fifth of nineteen ninety seven in Paris, France, two weeks after his eighty seventh birthday. He was buried in the family vault, and homage was paid to him by the town by naming the street which runs out to the house of his birth, Rue des Commandants, Cousteau, where a commemorative plaque was placed. That's wholesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to go out, I think. And uh, his, leg- his legacy was established, and uh, they actually ended up naming the in the road after him. Imagine having a road named after you too. Yeah. And then uh, Cousteau's legacy includes more than 120 television documentaries, more than 50 books, and an environmental protection foundation with 300,000 members. So uh, that's really his legacy. And uh, that's a crazy amount of books and television documentaries. 120 documentaries and yeah, 50 books. Jesus. Jeez. I didn't know it was that many. I thought it was like maybe 10 or 20. But yeah. 120. That's crazy. <laughs> he was definitely on the on the screen for a lot of his life. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, that's his legacy, and uh, that's how a lot of people remember him today is because of those television documentaries and the books that were written about him and uh, even by him. So uh, I think that's a, a good note to end on. All right. Yeah. Unless you have anything to say, uh, we'll wrap it up, Ian. Uh, no, I don't got anything. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap it up. All right, we'll wrap this up, and next week we'll have another episode on a historical figure and uh, another explorer, adventurer, and archaeologist that has uh, paved the way for uh, history and archaeology today. But uh, as usual, I'd like to give a shout-out to Anchor, our podcasting service. That's been a miracle in making this episode, and uh, we really couldn't have done it without it. If you guys have ever wanted to create your own podcast, this is a great service to do that, and uh, we, re- we highly recommend it. More importantly, I'd like to give a shout out to you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And uh, for those of you who have liked and been following the Facebook page, the community page, and our Twitter as we continue to grow. Uh, Remember, we also have a website and uh, we're actually working on the Patreon uh, Discord server as well. So uh, if you guys want to support the Patreon for as little as $3 a month, you can get exclusive access to bonus content. Exclusive access to bonus content and uh, the Discord server that we're going to make and uh, even uh, some more episodes. Uh, We're actually going to do an episode on uh, the Beale treasure that was recently found not that long ago in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, the whole uh, story behind that and uh, the guy who ended up finding it because uh, it's really historic moment having found such a treasure like that. Yeah. And actually, recently, I think I've seen some controversy about it as well. So it would be interesting to talk about that as well. Oh, yeah. But uh, remember, again, that is our Patreon only. uh, That's a Patreon only access episode that you guys can get access to for as little as $3 a month. So if you want to support us as well as get a reward for doing so with bonus content and uh, access to our Discord server and much more, feel free to support our Patreon page. I do want to mention a, uh, a comment that we got on the Facebook page from one Patty Bun Freeman. And uh, she pretty much recommended that uh, she, pr- she pretty much recommended the podcast. She said that I'm enjoying your podcast and I'm especially excited to hear someone of your age take such an interest in history. And then uh, she helped make a suggestion for us and uh, we're going to take it into consideration as we move forward with the podcast. So uh, thank you, Patty, for uh, your comment. And, uh, we, we appreciate all constructive criticism. Yeah, we really appreciate it, and we take it all to heart. Any suggestions, comments, concerns you have, we will definitely get to it. Yep. And uh, the Facebook page alone has grown up to uh, 72 followers, so uh, that's really good. And uh, I, I, I appreciate seeing so many people interested in the podcast and uh, following the Facebook page. All right. So uh, all that being said, thanks, guys, and uh, have a nice week. This is Jacob. And? All right. Carpe diem, guys. Carpe diem.